Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Alison Graylis is founder and president of the Women in Manufacturing Association, a national trade association focused on supporting, promoting, and inspiring women in the manufacturing sector. She is also president of the WIM Education Foundation, the 501c3 arm of WIM, which provides effective and affordable educational opportunities for women in manufacturing. Allison is also a frequent speaker at industry events, serves on many industry boards and committees, and in 2018 was recognized as one of Crane's Cleveland Business's Women of Note, which celebrates women for their outstanding leadership in the community. And we're so pleased to have her with us today. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Allison. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me. And I didn't mention this in your introduction, but you get mad props from me for being a fellow women's studies major during undergrad. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, it was one of those interesting things. I went to Ohio University and I stayed the course. So when I first started, I, I kind of knew that I either wanted to go political science and I was pre-law and either was going to go to law school or be an English major. And so I pretty soon into my first quarter at OU figured out I wasn't necessarily wanting to pursue political science, but rather to stick with English, which had always been a passion. And so because I didn't really stray from what was the recommended courses, I was set to graduate early. And with that time, I thought there was nothing better than I could do than to kind of match my personal passion with women's studies than to get a minor or certificate in women's studies. So it was a great opportunity to be able to do that and to um, kind of really be passionate about the the coursework. And um, we had such great faculty members and it was a great way to close out my college career. That's wonderful. And it's lucky that you had that. Not all the universities had women's studies back in the 90s and 2000s. Some programs don't even exist today in many universities. And actually, I think it's, they call it gender studies now, right? Yes, I think that is the, the new name. Well, and then I read that your plan was to go to law school, but you changed your mind and decided to go work for PERG. Which, for those who aren't familiar, that's Public Interest Research Group, which was a nonprofit that worked for consumer rights, right? Yeah. So I had no knowledge of what Public Interest Research Group was. I was really active on the campus at Ohio University in a lot of the kind of organizations. I was involved in Student Senate. I was involved in the women's group there and a few others and went to a career fair that they held on campus during my senior year. And again, that's where I I took the LSAT. I had full plans to go to law school and then went to this career fair and talked to this recruiter from Public Interest Research Group and was just blown away by the hands-on experience that I could potentially get through them. I was really doing grassroots organizing, which was always a passion of mine. So the opportunity was to to kind of go in and to work on issues that at the time and still are really important to me, such as good government, um, environmental issues, talking to consumers about recycling and, and um, protecting endangered species. So I kind of changed paths and decided not to be one of the zillion people going to law school that year, but rather to try a year in Boston um, working for PERG. And so again, great experience. It was probably one of the toughest years because I never had done canvassing. I had never done really grassroots organizing. 
And so I learned a lot. And they also empower people at a really young age to get to try a lot of different things and to really to, to showcase your voice and to have a platform that most people at the age of 20 don't have. Yeah, what a wonderful group. A lot of my friends who were on the social justice path back then went to work for Pargan, had amazing experiences. And interestingly, a lot of them are in leadership positions today. So you can see that it's it attracts that, that type of people and obviously very effective. Yeah, I definitely think so. So you then went to get your master's degree in public administration. And how did you get into the whole manufacturing world? Yeah, so I went to graduate school for a master's in public administration. And again, I, I had this... I always, from an early age, had an interest in aligning my passion around working on a common cause or an initiative and kind of tying my passions with kind of organizations that were similarly like-minded or missioned. And so in grad school, I got to work um, in lots of different projects and I actually had my graduate assistantship with the city of Akron and their economic development area working on funded projects, such as at the time, their ball field and working to bring businesses to their area. And I just thought it was really interesting working with companies, working with their interests to employ individuals, to provide products and services to individuals, and then as well to help the communities to which they're in. And upon graduation, I was looking for a job. And the first job, which was a a short stint, was with with a not-for-profit that specifically focused on drug and alcohol treatment for adolescents. And that was short-lived as I soon found then an opportunity to work for a trade association. And I had never really heard much about trade associations. I didn't know how they worked. And so was really intrigued by the position in particular because the, the scope was to work with their chapters or districts. So it was a national trade association for metal forming companies called PMA. They had districts in 20 areas throughout the country. And my role was to help develop them and to help them offer programming and services to their members. And then as well to get to travel, which at the time as a young 20 something seemed exciting to me to get to travel regionally and to work with them on kind of member outreach and board development. And so I thought, gosh, this is a pretty cool opportunity. So it's that kind of first job out of grad school and then have not looked back since. So you really got into the manufacturing sector straight in through trade organizations. Correct. So that poised you perfectly to be able to start your own trade organization. And you founded what is now a large and very successful trade organization, Women in Manufacturing. Can you tell us the story of like, how did you go from working at a trade organization to starting your own? Yeah, so the the Precision Metal Forming Association again, it, it was it it is, um, it's still a very active and vibrant present day. It's now a seventy, I think it's now five or six year old uh, national trade association, and it had been around and designed specifically to support small to mid sized privately held manufacturing companies in the metal forming space. So companies that that do fabricating and stamping and roll forming and and um, lots of other manufacturing metal forming processes. And as I worked with these companies and the individuals, there was a lot of business transitioning happening. So lots of second, third generations transitioning leadership to often daughters or female relatives in the organization. Mm. And as we got to work with them through some of our conferences and events, we found that many of them were looking for a network. So, you know, granted, they were the minority in metal forming companies and women still are the minority in manufacturing. But they were looking for how do I connect with other women like me, you know, often daughters taking over dad's business or uncle's business or grandpa's business. And how do I benchmark with these other women? How do we talk about common challenges that we're having? And as well, how do they navigate their success and their pathway in an industry that has for years been led by men? 
So we started some programming within the Precision Metal Forming Association for Women in Metal Forming. We had our first chair in 2010, Gretchen Zierk, who kind of spearheaded a lot of these networking activities within Women in Metal Forming. And then when I looked at, went to look as a staff person with the Straight Association for Resources nationally, found there was not a national entity that was representing specifically the interests of women and industry or women in manufacturing. So we started with a conference, which we thought, gosh, let's bring together people from all different facets of the manufacturing industry, not just metal forming. What year was this about? Almost 11 years ago. So our 11th anniversary summit will be this fall. There was a group that was forming a networking group all around metal forming. Right. And you decided to have a conference and then you just decided, why don't we just invite every woman in manufacturing? Like you just decided to expand it just like that? What we thought in the formation years were that the interest needs of women in metal forming as a niche part of manufacturing, we believed were not that different probably from those in lots of other facets of manufacturing. So whether it be women in fasteners, women in 3D printing, women in lots of these other areas, we had a feeling that they were experiencing lots of these same challenges and then as well would equally benefit from having a community of other industry women they could connect to. Mm -hmm. So we started with a conference that was expanded. So it was our first ever women in manufacturing conference. And we weren't really sure who would be the audience that would end up being at the conference, but it was a unique group of 133 women from all over the country in all different roles in manufacturing, some of which were metal forming women, others were not. And um, we heard such positive feedback and on the, the conversations on the output that we had gotten from the conference, it was, how do I join? How do I become part of your organization? So I then created a business plan and looked at membership structuring of how, how and what would be the cost of people to join, what would be the benefits, and from there on started welcoming members. And how is it set up now? Is it that each state has its own chapter or is it a regional? So as a national trade association, we have now members throughout the country. We're now in 44 states, 11 countries. And we are a national group, so an, or an individual can either join. We have four, four facets of membership. We have individual, corporate, professional, plus, and as well as students. And so an individual can join or a corporate entity or company can join, and then they receive certain benefits. And um, it's paid at the national level, their dues. And then they have unlimited access to chapters or their extended membership into our chapters, um, and then they just pay a la carte for any of the chapter programming or events that they attend, which are usually very cost effective. Some options are free for chapter participation. Some meetings you pay, you know, a very small amount to participate. And it's not all business. I mean, I've seen some really fun things on there. There's like, I think I saw a coffee tasting and there's yoga, things like that, right? Our chapters are very, very creative. So they, last year, um, we just launched our 29th chapter today, which was in Tennessee, which we are really excited about. And we're on par to have now another four go live here in the next six to 12 months. But our chapters are all volunteer led by very passionate and enthusiastic women in industry. And they had their most active year last year. So despite a pandemic and all of them being challenged, both in their personal and professional lives, our chapter leaders rose to the occasion and produced 202 programs wow. in 2020, which was the most we've ever produced. And at the same time, we also launched five new chapters last year. So it was a very active year. And they do fun things. As you said, they'll do social events, they'll do fun trivia nights. And they also were doing, you know, industry focused programs as well on on different timely topics and a lot of programs around kind of coping, like how is your company? surviving and thriving during a pandemic? How are you personally doing? As we know, it's really important. 
kind of the whole person that's showing up to work and dealing with all of these things being thrown at them. So many of their programs were just around providing support. And we found the same thing. You know, we launched community chats during the the start of the pandemic, which lasted for six months. And those were times where we just weekly would invite members to get together and to feel supported and to have a form where they could talk to one another. And we're also continuing that in a monthly format now with members. But it was really important just for people to know others were in the same boat. Others were dealing with kids at home, dealing with now, you know, everybody in the same house and in the same confines all day long, dealing with not being able to travel, remote teams, remote work. So it was really important to provide that community and support for one another. For organizations, you know, some of them have really filled that need for people during the pandemic where, you know, you just want some connection. Like you said, you're working from home. You need to know that there's others out there like you. I do want to talk a little bit about the state of women in manufacturing in general. But before we do that, since we started talking about the pandemic and what's going on, we're now over a year into the COVID-19 pandemic. It's affected everyone. And just this morning, I read that something like two to three million women have left the workforce due to pandemic-related childcare issues. So it has just been an, you know, unfortunately an enormous setback for women's advancement in the workplace and in general. So I'm wondering what impact have you seen on working women, especially in the manufacturing sector? It's been a very tough year for working women. And, you know, that applies to working women in manufacturing. And yeah, the stats, if you look at them, whether it be the Deloitte report, which I think is the one most prominently recognized or one of our corporate members, it's a crazy number of women who have left the workplace. And as you cited, much of it is due to the fact that individuals struggled that it's really tough to balance the demands of home life and work life. And childcare is one of the biggest issues. And interestingly, we conducted in the fall of 2020 last year, our first ever benchmarking report with Thomas Research. Mm-hmm. And again, that's Thomas Industry. They used to do the big Thomas registers. Now they're Thomas, but they've been a valued partner for the last few years. But the research we, we talked to close to 500 unique individual women in manufacturing. And what they told us is uh, childcare was their big issue as well, that what they were looking for or what they'd love to find in a place of employment and where they work is to have a solution to how to kind of care for children while they still pursue a career. And a pandemic put a huge kind of challenge to that because, you know, women were trying to deal with the demands of, you know, often international global calls at times when you have kids who are home and dealing with homeschooling and transportation, potentially, if they did have a source of childcare or someone else to watch children. So it was really demanding. And so as women assessed kind of that, how do I integrate all of this together? Many women said, I need to step out either for just a little while or until this gets resolved. And I think we are all hopeful that women will come back and that they'll they'll return back to the workforce once things are settled or once things are closer to normalcy or whatever new norm is. But I think it's also given companies a huge realization that this problem, even without a pandemic, is still going to persist. That intelligent, talented women are coming out of college, making decisions often, many of them to have a family. And as such, when they make that decision, that shouldn't put them out of the workforce or shouldn't put them in contention for promotions or advancements just because they have a family as well. And so I think companies are being creative. Obviously, larger companies have more resources. So we're seeing an increasing number of large organizations investing in on-site 
childcare and daycare. Oh, that's amazing. You know, and it, it's being piloted at manufacturing companies. It's been hugely successful. Again, it's a retention tool. You know, why would I want to leave a place of employment that values me, my family, who I am as a human, and also my need for childcare? So more and more companies are doing that. Obviously, that's a large investment. And the larger companies obviously have more resources to do that. But I think even for small to mid-sized companies, figure out how can they be creative and responsive? Can they create alternative work schedules for working moms and parents or people who not even just don't have kids, but there are many people who have demands with elder care and, and parents and family members and other demands. So, you know, trying to be flexible. And I think this year has more than ever, or this pandemic 2020, as well as into this year, has taught us that we all have to be flexible and creative and able to kind of switch gears pretty quickly. How is women in manufacturing as an organization trying to convince companies to do this? Or are you putting forth data or ideas? Is it lobbying? How are you achieving this? Yeah, so I think data is, you know, key. So companies make decisions based on data and hard numbers and facts and metrics. And so, you know, our research that we conducted, we think is a starting point, and that will be an annual study that is conducted each fall. We'll release it again at this year's summit in October. But again, it gave guidance as to how are companies recruiting, how are they retaining individuals, and what are individual women looking for at places of employment. So I think a good gauge for companies to check that out and to look to see gosh, do we check these boxes? Are we offering the types of things that keep and retain and attract women to our companies and our positions? Likewise, you know, we're looking to help provide best practices. So we do a summer leadership conference and now a winter leadership conference with corporate members. We now have 167 corporate members and, and they share case studies and white papers and they, they do presentations um, to share with one another about how are they creating, for example, women's affinity groups? How are they tackling on-site daycare um, so that companies can learn from one another? What was that journey like? What was the investment of time or resources? And then what have been the results? So we're doing that as well for corporate members. And then likewise, you know, for individual women in manufacturing who might be working moms, we just have launched a a moms manufacturing group. Mm. So the group will be virtually meeting for the first time ever this summer. And it will be a year round support network where individuals can ask questions of one another. We'll be doing panels and, and having live sessions and presenters. But again, all with that hope to provide support because we know it's tough. I, I was a, a mom of two young kids born not by design, but born 16 and a half months apart. And they're now in eighth grade and high school. But I can tell you my toughest years were when they were toddlers and when they were young and trying to make decisions about, you know, do I go for a promotion? Do I look for career advancement at the same time that I've got two kids who aren't yet in school and have full-time childcare and daycare and, you know, dealing with things like travel and kind of shared responsibilities with your partner and parent, other parent, it gets really tough and it's emotionally draining. It is a lot of tough decisions. And so our goal is to try to, to provide guidance and support for these other moms who are in that same position. That's amazing. I need to get that information from you. I want to join in. The first time I ever left my kids was when I had to go overseas to visit our factory for Juno Jones Boots. And that was tough. So yeah, leaving them like that. And I know women in manufacturing and especially when you have to travel and deal with industries where maybe women aren't as commonly in leadership, it can be tough. What are some things that we can do to advance women in industry? I mean, I know that you've talked a lot about the data collection and talking to to companies about how they can make the workplace more welcoming. But are there things that we can do as individuals 
Yeah, I think, you know, our data also that we conducted in 2020, one of the illuminating pieces that came out of it was the importance and need that women had for mentorship. And so mentoring, whether it be informal, where, you know, you're maybe you're a small group of individuals at your company, where maybe you're doing some informal mentoring and coaching for some of your coworkers, colleagues, and or some companies are putting together formal mentoring programs. Mentoring is really important. Individuals need to have, again, I think an outlet, whether they're men or women, an outlet by which they can meet with maybe experienced or more veteran individuals in their organization to garner feedback, advice, um, to help them as they look at kind of career pathways and where do they see themselves in the future in the company. And I think for, again, an industry like ours, where there is a a larger majority of, of men, there are more men that we find who are mentors. So I think in our research, the study was that 67% of mentors that individuals identified that they had were men. So we know there are more and more males who are mentoring women who are looking to rise the ranks. So I think providing kind of coaching and guidance to men who are mentoring women is really important. And we've done some programs around allyship and, and men as allies, which I think is great for companies, especially if they're kind of new in the journey of, you know, better creating and supporting mentoring in their organization. And we also are creating mentoring circles in all of our chapters throughout the country. So again, trying to provide people a local network of mentors and connections that they can go to for advice, guidance, and feedback. And then, you know, we also have added coaching components to all of our formal leadership programs, as well as our regional conferences and our events that we produce, because coaching is invaluable and not everyone has thousands upon thousands of dollars to invest in executive coaching. So we're trying to, in a very affordable way, blend coaching into all of, again, our regional programs, our national events that we're producing, as well as those leadership programs to give people perhaps their first taste of what coaching is to at least get them started on that journey that maybe in the future they can pursue in a more significant way if their budgets and their times and schedules allow. But mentoring is really, really important. What is the difference between mentoring and coaching? Often you see peer mentoring often happening. So it's often kind of peer-to-peer and or kind of a more seasoned or veteran colleague providing kind of in a mentoring or a formal framework often. Time to feedback to provide kind of advice guidance. Usually mentees come with questions to their, their formal mentor. Coaching is usually, you know, working with someone who's been certified. So for example, at our events, we have certified coaches that are working with women. And it's often on different areas where an individual may feel like they need to strengthen or may need to work on, or maybe it's gaps in their expertise. So coaches are a bit more trained and more formalized in how they work with an individual or candidate on different things. So often we find coaches work with individuals on areas like communications. So, you know, coaching on communications can include recording an individual talking, helping them as they tell their story, helping them kind of frame situations, you know, perhaps um, as they're talking about their expertise, you know, women often have a tendency to downplay some of the great accomplishments they have. So a coach in a professional way could help work with them to better tell their story and share some of those areas of expertise and accomplishment that they have as they're talking to perhaps a, a senior person at their organization. So coaches, again, it's really invaluable and they can work on lots of different things with individuals and candidates. And so what we're often, as I mentioned, trying to do is give people a taste of coaching at our events so that they can see maybe some areas that they need to or want to work on. We have been discussing how it's so important to have male allies and it's so important to have male mentors as well. And you said something like 67% of women have male mentors. So I'm just curious, has the willingness of men 
to mentor women changed at all in the wake of the Me Too movement? Or has it increased? Has it decreased? Is it the same? You know, I don't have data specifically around if if that's dropped or increased based on kind of the current climate and conditions. I think that in our industry, at least, given kind of our percentage and population in manufacturing, I think we're going to continue to see until more women rise in leadership, probably still a predominance of male mentors in manufacturing. So I think that that will continue and persist. I think that, you know, formal mentoring is done in, you know, a safe and secure and a productive way. I think male executives in manufacturing have recognized that um, yeah, there's a challenge with our pipeline. There are too few people who are right now um, in the wings to fill, what is it, the, the current 515,000 open positions in manufacturing. So I, I think men and leadership teams um, within manufacturing organizations are realizing that you know, we've got to, to, to focus more on kind of how do we develop people internally. And so I think mentoring is one of those tools that companies will are using and will continue to use. Let's talk about the state of women in manufacturing in general. Um, I think I read that the manufacturing sector is about 30% women. Is that right? I think present statistic is around 29%, so very close to 30. In general, what types of jobs do they hold? Are these across the board or are you talking about leadership? Yeah, so women hold a variety of different roles in manufacturing. You know, sadly, the the largest percentage is not in leadership. And, you know, our organization really strives to focus on trying to support women advancing. While we'd love to see women making up, you know, more than half of the manufacturing workforce, we find that's important. But I think equally, if not more important, is getting more women to leadership. So how do we get more women to be managers, directors, senior supervisors, vice presidents, plant managers, and ultimately presidents, CEOs, and board members? You know, how we do that is through helping them make connections, relationships, helping them develop their skills and fine-tune skills. And as well, one of the biggest pieces of that is illuminating those people that are already there. So we have launched a series called Hear Her Story. We launched it quite a long time ago. I think it was 2012 was our first Hear Her, Stories fe- Hear Her Story feature that we did. And the goal was to tell the story of how women rose. So how did they climb that ladder? How did they get to this position of leadership and to lend that expertise and insight to future generations? Because there's a lot of navigating that happens and a lot of decision-making that happens to ultimately get to that position of leadership. And so we often say that you can't be what you can't see. So through our Hear Her Story series, the goal is to show these women in leadership or those who have risen with a hope to inspire and inform future generations so that they can as well follow a similar pathway of interested. So, you know, the goal, again, we'd love to have more equity and more women in manufacturing, but I think more importantly, more women in leadership, because more women in leadership um, means more women will be recruited and interested and attracted and gravitate to those companies led by women. And as well, there's great benefit to have women in leadership positions in organizations. So we we believe it's kind of a win-win for both manufacturing as well as for our workforce. Well, from what you're saying, it sounds like the old stereotype, you know, because there were only so many women allowed to be at the top, women would be out to get each other instead of supporting each other. But from what you're saying, it sounds like that's really a thing of the past in the manufacturing industry. Do, Do you agree with that? We believe that. And I I think that you're seeing more and more collaboration and sisterhood, I think, spawning over the last few years of kind of realizing that collaboratively and working together, we can accomplish great things. And, And so as you look at, you know, our organization, we have often put together and created panel opportunities and best practice sharing sessions. And it's amazing the 
the collaboration between companies, between female leaders. There's a lot of commitment that female leaders who have risen and arrived at the top, a lot of commitment that they've made to, to mentor, to pay it forward, to lend their expertise to, to other women behind them, and to also change their companies for the better, to, to their working to change corporate cultures. They're working to change workplace practices. And um, so I think that we see a lot of positive collaboration happening amongst women and a lot of support being lent to women. That's so awesome to hear. Well, how can our listeners learn more about women in manufacturing and get involved with it? Lots of information can be found on our website, which is www.womeninmanufacturing.org. And as well, you can find us at Women in MFG on all social handles. We also, as I mentioned, that series, Hear Her Story, that we launched now nine years ago has come live with a podcast. So I'm hosting a monthly podcast called Hear Her Story, where we live will be talking to women leaders in manufacturing and sharing their insights and expertise so people can listen to Hear Her Story live wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. I meant to ask you about the podcast and congratulations on that. That's really cool. I'm excited for that too. Well, Alison Grayless, founder and president of Women in Manufacturing. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast today. We appreciate your leadership and everything you're doing to help advance women in the workplace. Oh, great. Thank you. And thanks for providing me the opportunity to chat today. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.